Well, good morning, everybody. Whether you're sat with your family this morning, whether you're sat alone somewhere in a flat or house, the Bible says that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you. And so just a quiet reminder that as we're sat and listening, Jesus is with us. He knows about our cares and our sorrows and our anxieties. And he says to us, cast all your care upon me because I care for you. This coronavirus has taught us all the truth of what James says in James chapter 4. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So, Lord willing, today we'll be starting a new sermon series through the book of First Peter. If you wanted a title for the sermon series, it would be After Suffering, Glory. And there are two key verses in the book that reflect that theme. The first is in chapter 1 and verse 11, where Peter speaks about the prophets who predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And the second key verse is in chapter 5 and verse 10, where Peter says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. You see the pattern. Peter says that after Christ's suffering came glory, and to all who follow him, Jesus promises glory after suffering. This morning we're going to have a look at just the first two verses of this letter. I promise we're not going to go through the book just two verses at a time, although we could, because there's such a lot here. First Peter is such a meaningful book. You can sit down and read it through in about 12 minutes, but it's packed full of deep theological truths on the one hand and down-to-earth practical godly advice for us on the other hand. Let's have a look. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is God's word. The book of First Peter is actually a letter, and in the first couple of verses, Peter uses the standard greeting that you would find in any Greek letter of the first century. Unlike our English letters, where we begin with the recipient, dear John, and end with the sender, lots of love, Andrew, the Greeks would always begin with the sender. And so the first few words of this letter are, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. A friend of mine, a fellow pastor in England, points out that if you think about it, it's quite amazing that this letter was ever written. Remember that the night before Jesus died, while Jesus was undergoing a trial before the Sanhedrin, 
Peter stood outside in the courtyard and three times said the words, I don't know the man. He denied ever knowing Jesus. And yet, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus meets with Peter and gently gives him three opportunities to say, Lord, I love you, and then commissions Peter to go and feed his sheep and take care of his lambs. And so the letter of First Peter is a wonderful written testimony to the power of God to change lives. Here we have Peter restored and transformed and fulfilling his commission of looking after Jesus' flock. Peter calls himself an apostle. Uh, this is an apostle with a capital A. At the beginning of chapter 5, he explains something of what being an apostle is when he describes himself as a witness of Christ's sufferings. And you'll remember that that was one of the criteria for being an apostle. In the book of Acts, when the eleven disciples are looking for a replacement for Judas, Peter says that they are to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So Peter speaks here with an authority that no modern preacher or prophet, no matter how gifted, can speak with. As he is writing, he is laying a foundation for the church built on the apostles and prophets. And his words are not just to believers 2,000 years ago, but to all believers of all time, to you and to me. So Peter is the writer of this letter, and to whom is he writing? Well, we'll look at this in more detail in a moment, but Peter describes the recipients as scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These were five provinces in the area that we now know as Turkey. How did Christianity come to this area all the way from Israel? Well, there are various suggestions, but two that are quite probable and that are quite meaningful to us. The first possibility is that people from this region came to faith in Christ on the day of Pentecost. You remember how on the day of Pentecost the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples and they go outside and speak in tongues and a crowd assemble and they ask the question, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Luke, who's writing this book of Acts, mentions the very areas that are listed here in verse 2. So some of the Christians that Peter is writing to could have been those who were there on the day of Pentecost and were among the 3,000 who came to faith in Christ that day. But those folk couldn't really be described as exiles. This area was their home. And so a second and more likely possibility as to who these folk were is found in the book of Acts chapter 18. In that chapter we read that Paul went to Corinth and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. 
Now, Luke is in fact referring to a historical event that is mentioned in other writings of the time. Claudius was the Roman emperor, and his biographer specifically mentions this incident. He says, Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, the emperor, expelled them from Rome. And it's quite possible that this biographer has got it slightly wrong and is referring to the disturbances caused not by Crestus, but by Christos, Christ. Because the Jews in Rome were constantly fighting about whether or not Jesus really was the Christ, the emperor expelled them from Rome, and some of the believers have ended up in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. These men and women and boys and girls really were exiles then. They were foreigners, strangers in a foreign country. And as we read on in this letter, we'll discover that these folk were living in a very hostile environment. It seems that this letter is written fairly early on in church history. It comes before the major empire-wide persecutions that came against the Christians under the emperors Nero and Diocletian. But these Christians are beginning to suffer for their faith and Peter knows that there is worse to come. But it's Peter's fuller description of these Christians that I think is important for us this morning, because Peter describes who these folk are in Christ Jesus, and who we are too. Remember, Peter is an apostle writing to all believers of all time. And in difficult times, like the time in which we are living right now, it's important to remind ourselves of our identity. I heard about how one evening a busy flight was cancelled at an American airport and there was one solitary booking agent sat behind a desk trying to rebook a long line of inconvenienced passengers. Suddenly an angry passenger pushed his way to the front of the queue. He slapped his ticket down on the counter and shouted, I have to be on this next flight and it has to be first class. The agent replied, I'm sorry, sir, I'll be happy to try and help you, but I've got to help these folks first, and I'm sure we'll be able to work something out. The passenger was unimpressed. He asked loudly so that all the passengers behind him could hear, Do you have any idea who I am? Without hesitating, the gate agent smiled, grabbed her public address microphone, and announced loudly for the entire airport to hear, May I have your attention, please? We have a passenger here at the gate who does not know who he is. If anyone can help him find his identity, please come to gate 17. It's important that we know who we are, not in ourselves, but in Christ. In verse 1, Peter describes Christians in two words. He says we are elect exiles, immensely privileged misfits, rich refugees. And then in the rest of these verses, he elaborates on those two main terms. Let's look at each of them in turn. Firstly, in verse 1, Peter describes Christians as God's elect. And then in verse 2, he explains what that means. He tells us three things about what it means to be God's elect. God's elect are those who have been chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, and sprinkled by the blood of the Son. Firstly, Peter says God's elect have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. 
Now, we might feel a little uncomfortable with that idea until we read on in First Peter and see that Peter writes about Jesus being chosen. In verse 20, Peter says that he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And in chapter 2, he describes Jesus as the living stone rejected by people, but chosen by God and precious to him. Putting that together then, we can say that this means that in all eternity past, God saw you and he saw me and he chose us to be in Christ Jesus, to have a relationship with him through his Son. Now when it comes to this concept of God choosing us, some people immediately want to know, well, does this mean that God chooses some people and doesn't choose others? This is one of the unanswered and unanswerable questions of the Bible, how God can choose us and at the same time have us choose him. To be honest, there's a great deal that I don't understand about this, probably because God is God and I am not. But I think that this is one of those rare occasions when we should think about ourselves and not think about others. I want to leave aside what I don't understand for a moment and to spend a few minutes thinking about the personal implications for us from this concept. And we'll look at three. Firstly, my being chosen by the Father speaks about the depths of God's love for me. This concept of God's choosing comes to us from the Old Testament. In this verse, Peter is taking an expression that used to belong to the people of Israel and he's applying it to Christians. A little later on in chapter 2, Peter says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Those were all terms that applied to the nation of Israel, but now apply to Christians. One of the first times this idea of choosing is mentioned in the Bible is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God says this to the Israelites through Moses. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And then he gives the reason for God's choice. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Did you notice the circular reasoning in that verse? God says, I did not set my affection on you because you were the biggest or the strongest or the brightest or the most beautiful. I set my affection on you because I loved you. Basically, I loved you because I love you. One Bible commentator points out that it's circular reasoning because that's the only way real love works. You could try this for yourself this afternoon. Your spouse comes to you and says, do you love me? And you reply, of course I love you. And then she asks, why do you love me? You could respond in one of two ways. You could try saying, I love you because you're smart and you're pretty and you have a great sense of humor and you earn a good salary. That conversation probably won't end well. Or you could say truthfully, I love you because I just love you. 
God's choice of us speaks of his great love for us. As one pastor puts it, before the universe was created, God saw you at your worst and said, I love you. Before there was a you to love, he chose you and in time called you to himself. Secondly, my being chosen by the Father speaks of his grace toward me. We are God's chosen people, not God's choice people. If you're a choice people, that means there is something special about you that made God choose you. But if you're a chosen people, it means there is something special about God that makes him choose you. The Apostle Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he writes to the Christians there and says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. These verses speak about God's grace towards us and the fact that we are saved by grace. I heard about a pastor who was having a discussion with a group of young people about this concept of God choosing us, and one young lady objected and said, I don't believe in that. I believe in free will. And so the pastor said to her, you live in a university, Rez. Is your roommate a Christian? And this young lady replied, no, she's not. And the pastor asked, why are you a Christian and she's not? She replied, well, because of free will. I chose to believe and she didn't. Okay, the pastor said, but why did you choose to believe and she didn't? Well, because I admitted my sin and she didn't. Yes, but why did you admit your sin and she didn't? Well, because I saw something and she didn't. Yes, but why did you see something and she didn't? And the pastor kept on pressing her and pressing her and pressing her to get her to the point where she would recognize that actually there are only two alternatives. Either you became a Christian because you're just a teeny tiny little bit better or smarter or wiser than others, or you became a Christian because God in his loving, sovereign choice chose you and opened your heart. My salvation does not rest on the quality of my response or love. It rests on God's grace. And that produces humility. You see, I think that some of us who've been Christians for a while and have managed to avoid some of the more obvious sins could start to think that we're actually good candidates for God, whereas actually it's a miracle that any of us are Christians. We are all miracles of God's grace. And thirdly, my being chosen by the Father gives me assurance and reassurance. In those cold, lonely, sad, dark nights when I lie awake and the devil comes and whispers, you're not really a Christian, are you? How can someone like you claim to be a Christian? God doesn't really love you. At those times, I can have the assurance 
that my salvation doesn't hang on something as flimsy as me choosing God, but on him choosing me. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You and I are held tightly in the double grip of God the Father and Son. Being chosen by the Father means that I have assurance and reassurance. But not just for my salvation. In his commentary on these verses, Wayne Grudem suggests that the phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God, doesn't just apply to the word chosen, but actually applies to all of verse 1. In other words, these people's status as exiles, even their hostile environment in Pontus, Galatia, etc., were all known by God before the world began. All came about in accordance with his foreknowledge, And thus we may conclude all were in accordance with his fatherly love for his own people. Now, I don't know whether that is correct grammatically, but it is certainly correct theologically. The hard time that these Christians were undergoing may have been a surprise to them, but it wasn't a surprise to God. And that gives us great comfort in the situation in which we find ourselves right now. This coronavirus was certainly not what we were expecting for this year. But God knew about it before the foundation of the world, and he is using even this to accomplish his purposes. His purpose for me as an individual, and his purpose for the universe, to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even our Lord Jesus Christ. So God's elect are chosen by the Father. Secondly, God's elect are sanctified by the Spirit. Peter is referring here to the fact that it is the Holy Spirit who cleanses us when we first become Christians. But of course, this isn't just a once-off action of God's Holy Spirit. Day by day, God's Holy Spirit works within us to make us more and more like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says that we who contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That, in fact, is the evidence that I've been chosen by the Father, the fact that I am not the same person I was a year ago, but have grown in the knowledge and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is evidence that I belong to him. We have a couple of folk from Australia listening to our sermon today, and some of you have family members in Australia. The Australian coat of arms has two animals on it, the emu and the kangaroo. Besides being animals that are unique to Australia, these animals were chosen because of a characteristic that they both share. Do you know what it is? Both the emu and the kangaroo can only move forward and not backward. The emu's three-toed foot causes it to fall if it tries to go backwards, and the kangaroo can't go backwards because of its large tail. 
And in choosing these animals for their coat of arms, the Australians wanted to portray a nation moving ever forward. Those of us who are chosen by God become like the emu and the kangaroo. We continue to move forward in our Christian lives through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. I'm not perhaps what I would like to be, but praise God, I'm not what I was. God's elect are chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, and thirdly, God's elect are sprinkled by Christ's blood for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, Peter says. This idea of being sprinkled by blood comes to us from the Old Testament and from Mount Sinai. In Exodus 24, Moses reads the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law to the Israelites, and they respond by saying, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. And Moses gets some young men to sacrifice bulls to the Lord, and then he takes the blood from those bulls, half of it he pours at the base of the altar, the other half he puts in bowls and he goes through all the people and he sprinkles the blood on them and he says these words, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Fast forward 1,200 years to the night before Jesus dies and at that last supper Jesus takes a cup full of wine, gives it to his disciples and says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. To be sprinkled with Christ's blood shows God's acceptance of us because the penalty of sin has been paid. As Peter says a little later in verse 18, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Here now is our deepest identity. Before we were born, the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit invested in us. You and I this morning, living in 2020 in a global pandemic, are God's elect, chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit and sprinkled with Christ's blood. But secondly, not only are these Christians elect, but they are also exiles. They're scattered strangers in the world. Now, as I've mentioned, it seems very likely that the people to whom Peter was writing were literal strangers in a foreign land. They'd been expelled from Rome and had settled in these foreign provinces in Turkey. But the order of these verses is important. Peter doesn't say, you're strangers, but cheer up, God has chosen you. It's the other way around. He says, God has chosen you, and actually that then makes you a stranger and a foreigner on earth. This world is not our home. And that has a couple of implications for us. Firstly, even if you're not a Christian this morning, you're not at home in this world. And actually, this worldwide pandemic can make you aware of that. Richard Dawkins is an author and atheist, and in one of his books he writes this, In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, 
and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. But does that really satisfy you if you're not a Christian? Can you honestly say this morning, the coronavirus may take away the people who are most precious to me, but that's okay? Could you say, I love that person with all my heart. They died, so what? That's the world in which we live. Are you comfortable with that? Of course not. And if you're not comfortable, can I say that that uncomfortableness points to the fact that you aren't made for this world. This place doesn't fit you. You're not home. If you're a Christian, remember this world isn't your home. The writer to the Hebrews mentions this in Hebrews chapter 11, where he describes the faith of a whole list of Old Testament believers and says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Some of us are praying, Lord, take this pandemic away from us. Allow us to get back to normal life. But folk, this world is not our home. It is going to end one day. Maybe this is the beginning of the end, maybe not. But one day the world will end, and God's eternal city, the new Jerusalem, will come. We shouldn't get too comfortable and mourn at the loss of things as if they were the most important things to us. But if this world is not our home, then where is home? The answer is God himself. In the book of Genesis, we read how Adam and Eve were at home with God, walking with God in the Garden of Eden, but their sin caused them to be separated from God, cast out of the Garden, away from home. And the rest of the Bible is a description of God calling human beings back to himself. A little bit later on in this letter, Peter points out that once these people had been without God, without hope in the world, following the empty way of life handed down from their forefathers, but now they have returned to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. God is our home. As Isaac Watt put it in his hymn, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. And we'll see some further implications of the world not being our home a little bit later on in our study through First Peter. We've covered an awful lot of ground this morning from just two verses. In fact, we didn't even look at everything in these verses. We left out the last part of verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. That will just have to be our benediction. But just to remind us again of our identity this morning. We are those who are elect, chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled with Christ's blood. And we are those who are exiles, scattered strangers. 
And perhaps as we close, it may be useful for us to see that we then share the identity of Christ. We've already seen that Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, the living stone rejected by people but chosen by God and precious to him. But do you remember that he was also the ultimate exile? Jesus had been at home with God. But being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to at all costs. He left his father's throne above. He left home and came to earth. And even when he was on earth during his years of ministry, he didn't have a home. Nowhere in the Gospels do you ever read, Jesus was at home eating when some men came to him. We never see that. In fact, Jesus specifically said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, nowhere to call home. And even when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified outside the city, a rejected outcast. And on the cross he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was separated from God, away from home the ultimate exile. Jesus took the exile we human beings deserved so that we could be brought home, home to God. And so in Hebrews chapter 13, the writer says, Jesus suffered outside the city to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Amen.